This is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. For those people helping to keep us on the air, I want to thank you. Uh, we are not a nonprofit, so anybody helping us uh, financially to stay on the air, it's a contribution. And uh, we have a big red, red button at our website. You could just click and it'll explain what to do. Uh, many great guests this year, and we continue. And today we're very happy, uh, very thankful that Ananta Govinda has uh, come on as a guest. Uh, he is a visionary musician, author, photographer, and multimedia producer. Um, being a practitioner of the Vedic sciences and bhakti yoga for over 25 years. Thank you so very much, Ananta, for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Ananta, um, why don't we fill in our listeners uh, on your spiritual trajectory, which is quite fascinating. So if you could give us the kind of brief version of <laughs> your, uh, how you came to the work you do and the path you, you, you're on. Well, uh, yes. Let's see. How can we summarize that? Um, I consider myself the follower of the Vedic sciences, and in my uh, life, I've been practicing the, the path of bhakti yoga for almost uh, 25 years. So I would describe myself as a bhakti yoga practitioner and um, somebody who draws a lot of information and inspiration from, from the Vedas. And that affects a lot of my, my work and uh, my music, musical presentation and uh, the book and the photography. All of that is inspired by um, the Vedas and all the knowledge and wisdom that I draw from there. Mm -hmm. uh, Ananta, if I could ask you, uh, your uh, association with your connection to uh, Bhakti Yoga is that uh, has that been through uh, the group uh, that teaches Krishna consciousness, specifically Radhanath Swami, who I know you have a, a connection to? Uh, is that uh, where your connection to uh, Bhakti Yoga comes from? And uh, if so, if you could explain how that uh, your connection, your your relationship with uh, Radhanath Swami, who we've had on the show. Uh, uh -huh. came yeah, definitely. Radhanath Swami has been a big inspiration in my life, and I was very fortunate to to receive an official um, initiation and introduction into the path of Bhakti Yoga by Radhanath Swami about um, 20 something years ago. And uh, yeah, it's been a big blessing. And Radhanath Swami is a very great uh, and personal example of what bhakti yoga can uh, how bhakti yoga can benefit a person you know in his life story and in his personal dealings uh, you feel that how uh, the science of science of krishna consciousness uh, can transform and benefit the person in his uh, spiritual well-being um, if you want to be a little bit more specific, so the Bhakti Yoga tradition is one of the pathways in the yoga ladder. We understand the different kind of yogas, and here in the West we mostly know the you know the exercise yoga, which is 
uh, an extension of Hatha yoga. But there are other kinds, and they're, they're yoga of uh, knowledge and wisdom, which is called jnana yoga, where we try to achieve the path of spiritual enlightenment by gathering information, by analytically studying the world around us and uh, trying to come up with the reasonable conclusions. Bhakti yoga is a little different in that sense. It's, it's not so much of a intellectual process, even though it is based on science, metaphysical science and scriptures and so forth. But um, the focus of Bhakti Yoga is to engage your inner spiritual connection with the divine. Uh, they say it's the yoga of the heart. It's when you feel and you experience spiritual revelation, not by intelligence, but rather by uh, an emotional, spiritual experience. So, um, yes, the group of uh, um, Radhanath Swami, uh, they, um, technically, it's a, it's a tradition within Hinduism called Vaishnavism, if you want to be that specific, um, because, you know, within Vedic, within Hindu culture, there's, there's a lot of different ideas and different concepts. So the particular uh, presentation of Krishna consciousness or the, the science of the Vaishnava philosophy is a, it's a monotheistic tradition within the Hindu culture right. where, where uh, there's a belief in one deity and um, <clears throat> manifestations or avatars that come out of that uh, deity. So, um, yes. We'll, uh, we'll refer our uh, listeners to some of our earlier podcast guests who include uh, other Vaishnavites like Graham Schweig and Radhanath Swami and other bhaktas like uh, Jayutal uh -huh. and other Kirtanwalas. And yes. <laughs> so they'll have a big education. I want to ask you, uh, I learned today, now I've met you a few times, but I never realized that you were born in Russia and, <laughs> and came to the, to the U.S. as a young man. And I'm curious, uh, I'm guessing uh, your bio says you, you were born in Russia after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, but I'm guessing there were vestiges of um, the sort of totalitarian situation that might have made spiritual discoveries a little different than what it would have been in the U.S. Can you say a little about that and what brought you to the U.S.? Sure. Well, I, um, I was born in the middle of the communist years. I mean, I grew up when the Berlin Wall was taken down, but I was born in 1974. So I've experienced a lot in my early days of, you know, the exposure to a lot of things of the, uh, you know, the communist era. And the communist era when there was not so much belief in the ideology anymore, like early days, uh, people actually believed in, you know, in their leaders and they believed in the whole ideology. But when I was growing up, it was more of a facade, you know, people... They got um, disinterested so much in the idea of communism because they, they start seeing that it's not bringing the promised results. So there was um, dissatisfaction with the with the authority, with the state. So 
it was a nominal influence in my life, but I think what I've um, what I've carried out of it is the early understanding that uh, the official worldview may not be the all in all or <laughs> the only vision of the reality that that you know the states or the school provides you. It's not pro sometimes it's not the best uh, explanation to the world and that you have to start, you, you need to look for alternative understanding of reality in order to to make uh, sense of things. So the, the, living in a communist Russia, you know, obviously gave a lot of opportunities for that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, my big outlet for um, looking for alternative culture was experience of the Western music. You know, mm. I got exposed, exposed to the Beatles and their fascination with the Eastern culture and Bhagavad Gita was a big influence and, and put a lot of those seeds of, you know, trust in something that, trust to the fact that if something would come out of that uh, space like India or Bhagavad Gita, it might have some value. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that was my early connection to, you know, um, Early exposure to the Vedic culture and chanting and mm -hmm. uh, like that. Uh, so, I, I wanted to ask, uh, in reading about you, uh, you have a fascinating background. I mean, you came to the States, you started out in, in California, then you went to New York, where Phil and I are from, that area. And mm -hmm. uh, you lived in Williamsburg, I believe, and you were influenced by the Jewish neighborhood you were in, but you actually wound up studying the Quran. And you were also uh, there for the rave culture of the 90s. So all of these, <laughs> the, the rave culture, Judaism in Williamsburg, New York, which is tends to be quite orthodox, and, and studying the Quran, how all of those things are played into your ultimate uh, 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 commitment to bhakti yoga. Well, yeah, I was living in New York, and, and I think I was doing the ultimate, you know, big apple thing. I was trying to absorb everything that I, I saw around me, and... You know, the blend of cultures was very fascinating. Like, I was living in, in Williamsburg, and, you know, I would see a lot of, you know, Hasidic uh, Jewish people uh, mingling with, you know, with Polish people, and the Puerto Rican people were there. And uh, it was very fascinating uh, for me to see how all those cultures, they mingle and they, they coexist, you know, uh, California is, wasn't as as uh, as diverse as New York was for me, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, uh, it was very fascinating. And then um, I met some uh, hip hop people from hip hop communities from New York City, and they were uh, very much influenced by the Quran. And I think uh, there was a lot of connection between those two cultures back then. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. So uh, we had this conversation about the Bible and the Old Testament. So that was a, a big new door for my spiritual knowledge and wisdom, just the whole, the whole understanding of the New Testament. And I mean, the Old Testament and the New Testament and their correlation. And then, of course, the rave, the rave culture of the 90s in New York was very fascinating. It was, well probably one of the most exciting things in the subculture that was happening back in those days it was, I don't know, it was very mysterious and 
just even the way people were gathered for those events, like nobody would know where they were. They need to get like a special meeting point through the pager and everybody would meet there and, you know, they would go into some abandoned warehouses and there would be a DJ over there. And it was very fascinating. There was no money involved. There was no really, uh, you know, marketing element to any of this. It was uh, just a lot of, enthusiast driving all the culture forward so i i was helpful as much as as i could uh, to to those people as well and then um, i also started going to new york university and study some of the multimedia uh, courses that they had over there and i also took a course in comparative religion mm. and that was also very um very interesting it gave me a lot now let's uh, come full circle now and talk about your current project, which is uh, a very ambitious multimedia project, very uh, oriented toward uh, expressing what you've learned about the spiritual path, it looks like. So tell us about Mirror, uh, Mirror of Desire and what uh, it consists of and how it came about. Yes, Mirror of Desire is very uh, fascinating and multifaceted, just like you mentioned. It consists of the music uh, album release that um, just came out a couple of weeks ago on August 28th and getting some really great uh, response and traction. Uh, we got over 100,000 streams in the first week of the release. So that was that was very inspiring. Oh. Uh, yeah, and uh, so there is a book to follow that that's coming out in the middle of November. And the book, uh, it's a fantasy novel. Um, it's, it's a love story, story between uh, of, the, of the two characters, Kastuba and Adi, that try to reunite in this material world. They try to reunite again, even though they never met, but they, they do see each other in visions and dreams. And from some memories from the past previous lifetimes, so uh, it's a love story, but there's also an action element to it, and there's a lot of very interesting and dynamic reality that we created uh, for the Mirror of Desire, uh, based on the philosophy and understanding that I've learned from the Vedic uh, scriptures and Vedic sciences. Uh, uh, not so, as the uh, is the book. The same title? Will it be the book version of Mirror of Desire? Does it have a different title? Yes, it's the same title. It's actually going to be a trilogy. It's going to be Mirror of Desire, uh, followed by two other books. Mirror of Desire is coming out in uh, November, and the other two books coming later uh, next year, year, year after year. And yes, it's the same title, and... Um, a lot of information there on the website, which is also the same URL, uh, mirrorofdesire.com. And I will say, because you showed me uh, an early draft of the book, that um, it's not only a story, not only a fantasy novel, but it's uh, illustrated, as I recall, with uh, your own uh, work. And it's uh, quite striking. Am I correct in mem remembering that? Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of illustration. They're not just my work. I, uh, I uh, have a collaborator, co collaboration of 10 artists that uh -huh. worked with me uh, producing all this artwork. There's uh, models and 
um, beautiful imagery. And uh, yes, the book is fully illustrated. It's a full cover, uh, full color, 100 page book with a lot of illustrations and imagery. And uh, it's a beautiful piece, not just to read, but to see as well. Very good. And um, it also coming out as an interactive uh, iPad app uh, around Christmas time and uh, as a printed hardbound book. So the ebook is going to come out in November and followed by an interactive app uh, that's going to have some music and some parts of the book read by a narrator, uh, different objects that you can look and interact with. And all that is uh, scheduled to be released by the end of the year. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you about your own uh, spiritual practice. Uh, do you, you, obviously, you're very involved in music, but do you also take time every day to uh, uh, to, to chant, to do the Maha Mantra, uh, the you know the Hare Krishna Mantra, uh, and either by yourself or with others, or uh, is your devotional practice specifically in the music uh, you do alone? Uh, sorry, you asking? Yeah, how I, I do my spiritual yeah, practice. Daily uh, routine. Uh -huh. Do you take time for spiritual practice? And is that spiritual practice uh, chanting uh, the Hare Krishna mantra? Uh, yes, correct. So, one of the processes of bhakti yoga is to actively pronounce the chants or mantras or prayers, the holy mm -hmm. names. And you can do it in different ways. You can do it by singing. Like it can be a kirtan uh, where several people are gathered together with the instruments and they, they sing in call and response format. Or you can also do it on beads. Uh, it's called japa. Right. It's, uh, it's the same idea, the same chanting, but you do it privately uh, with the concept of you tuning in for your internal uh, voice of the super soul, of the paramatma, and allowing that voice to come uh, through to you through through the chanting. You connect with that inner guide, inner voice. And um, I try to do that as much as, as possible every day. Uh, the standard practice in the uh, Krishna consciousness movement is to do 16 rounds of those. You know, so you get you get those beads, you know, they're called malas. Right. The little beads that have 108 uh, pieces on them and you pronounce mantra on each one of them, and then you move to the next bead. And um, it's a it's a very engaging process because you invoke the mantra, you invoke the sound, and you bathe yourself yourself in that sound. Uh, but it also engages your fingers. It helps you focus by uh, touching the bead with two fingers, and that also um, adds additional layer of attention. So um, it's it's a ancient Vedic tradition chanting on uh, chanting on beads. It's it's been known for thousands of years, right, Phil? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you know a lot about that. <laughs> well, yeah, and and we've we've uh, discussed uh, some of the practices that come from the uh, Goja Vaishnavite Vaishnavite tradition on mm -hmm. the show. Um, on the uh, album the, uh, that was just released, I guess that was the first in a series of releases uh, that you described, um, it looks like 
you have a lot of uh, guest musicians, uh, some playing uh, Western-style uh, instruments, some Eastern. And um, from what I've heard, you uh, I assume you wrote all the lyrics, and the, the lyrics uh, point to... Um, or center around certain different aspects of uh, spirituality on each of the tracks. Uh, tell us about the blend of um, the the content of the lyrics and the the uh, instrumentation and musical styles that are on the album. Mm-hmm. Well, I I like collaborating with other artists. I think. I've learned that from participating in kirtan, kirtans, mm-hmm. which which um, which is a form of congregational chanting uh, or singing or, or making music. Uh, the idea there is that everyone everyone is a performer. We we don't have one big star that is there on stage and everybody is looking up to it. I mean, of course, these days there are kirtan stars and that seems to be the the trend of the day. You know. Kirtan band being on stage, but uh, traditionally it's a, it's a community gathering where people sit in a circle and they all um, they all contribute. So uh, I've always felt that music uh, benefits from that, from from different flavors and different personalities, bringing the energy and uh, blending it. You know, if it, if it's blend uh, in a tasteful way. So that's what I try to do with this album is uh, to come up with different styles and different artists coming from uh, various backgrounds of music. You know, we got uh, Will Cahoon from Living Color, which is, uh, you know, a rock band. We got uh, Lily Hayden playing on violin vocals, who is a, a Grammy winner for uh, in the world music category. We got Scott Page playing uh, saxophone, who played with bands, classic bands like Pink Floyd and Supertramp. Uh, we also got classically Indian-trained musicians like Ayan Khan, uh, John Rubenhorst playing traditional uh, Indian-style instruments like Bansuri or Sarod. So my my prayer, my hope was to find a tasteful way to. Uh, gather and aggregate all all this talent and create something that is uh, drawn into the tradition of other cultures, but is also pleasing and acceptable to the Western ear. Mm-hmm. And um, you tell me if I if I succeeded in that or not. But... <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, our listeners can go to Spotify and check it out. But uh, please say something about the 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 lyrics because. Um, um, it looks like you made a, you know, you you were oriented uh, to bring out uh, certain spiritual principles. Yes. Yeah, so each each song of the track is connected to a theme from the book, and and it's titled uh, in many cases by the name of the chapter of the book, and it's themed around uh, you know that particular idea. So we have a song that is called uh, the self-writing book, for example. And in the story, we have this all-knowing book of wisdom that has everything in it recorded from the past, present, and future. So the song is about that. And I try to, I try to weave and I try to explain the ideas of a, 
concept as karma and uh, the faith and how uh, certain things are predestined, but certain things we have freedom to choose. So that would be one example. Uh, another example would be the song um, River of Time that talks about the, the flowing nature of time. As we understand it from the Vedas, there is this river that divides the worlds of matter and spirit that flow the, the Viraja River that flows in the middle and it, and it carries, well, the story I call the molecules of time. They are the little atoms of time that manifest uh, the things of matter in the world of in the material reality, but they do come from the other spiritual dimension. So in the same way, in the same manner, I try to use um, some Western lyric explaining those ideas, explaining those concepts, but also weaving in uh, traditional Sanskrit uh, mantras and chants um, in a more like of a sound design kind of style. So you, you'll hear you'll hear them as a background vocals, sometimes up front, but a lot of time they're more like a sound design element, different, different mantras and chants. Mm. Very mm. good. And I, I have to ask, uh, not that... By the way, you mentioned John Wobbenhorst, the flautist. Yeah. Uh, he's a friend of mine. And I was actually his dean of students a um, million years ago at Maharishi University back when. And uh, uh, a wonderful man and a, and, a, and a great flautist. So I was glad to hear his name in, in connection with you. Uh, let, let me ask you one other question. Uh, your roots are obviously from Russia. And I don't know how connected you are with family or whatever in Russia now, but what is the spiritual scene in Russia now, uh, specifically in the, in the area you are from? And are uh, is, for instance, bhakti yoga uh, practice there? Is there an openness to a spiritual practice coming from Vedic tradition in India now, in, in Russia now? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I am a, a somewhat connected with Russia, not that closely. I mean, I left Russia about 25 years ago, so the bigger part of my life I've been living here in this country. I am a U.S. citizen, and I, I'm really grateful to this country. It gave me a, a lot, and uh, I think it's a wonderful place. I, I love American people, and um, once again, I, I'm, I'm grateful to you know both Russia for giving me birth and giving me education and, and upbringing, and, and America as well. So I I, um, I, uh, <laughs> I I don't I don't think I belong to any particular camp like you know right. Russian camp or this camp or that camp. As a matter of fact, my whole practice of bhakti yoga tradition and, and the vision that Krishna consciousness helps you cultivate is the understanding that you are neither of those things. We are not Russians or, or Americans or Hindus or Muslims. Those are just cultural and external designations and tag words or hashtags, whatever you want to call them. But um, we are the spirit souls. We're spiritual beings that uh, temporarily use those uh, facilities, those, those bodies or those designations. The, but we are much more than that. We, we transcend them to those concepts. Uh, we're not unrealistic about them. I mean, I am grateful to Russia. Uh, I am uh, connected to Russian culture. I go there um, every so often to visit some family there. 
But I also see how across the, the earth, across the globe, there's much more um, that's unifying us than uh, rather than dividing us. Mm-hmm. So, and answering the other question, uh, yes, Bhakti Yoga is very popular in Russia. It, it is uh, accepted and it's allowed. Um, it's, I think there was a point where uh, Russia had to sort through all the new religions, you know, back in the 90s or 80s or something, like a lot of new um, affiliations and a lot of new traditions were coming into Russia when you know the the, the communist the, when the the country fell apart. But uh, uh, the the Vaishnava tradition, the, the the Hindu, the Bhakti Yoga tradition was um, accepted as as bona fide as an official because they traced its roots back to Bhagavad Gita, that is um, by some calculations over five thousand year old scripture. So. Um, yes, Bhakti Yoga is popular and it's uh, doing well in Russia. Okay, I, I okay. wanted to add one thing, Phil, before. Yeah, go ahead. In addition to uh, the chanting that, that you, your tradition is involved in, and, I, and I've witnessed and participated in uh, many of your temples uh, worldwide and, and uh, find it very powerful. Uh, also, your particular tradition of Bhakti yoga uh, is uh, amazing what they do with food. And I think, bless the world. And like the world. Uh, as a matter of fact, I spent part of the year in Sweden, where my wife is from. And uh, one of the exciting thrills of being there is you have your restaurants uh, throughout that part of the world. And uh, they're fantastic. And, and I think, again, it's the uh, inner devotion uh, and focus that uh, the cook has that goes on the food that makes it so special. But there, I, I cannot talk about uh, your tr- bhakti tradition without mentioning uh, <laughs> how special and how, and, and also. Uh, I and think I know Phil lives is, close to the restaurant in, in Los Angeles. Right? I do. Yes, you live uh, very close to. Go- I, I, was, I was yes. in the restaurant in Brooklyn, you know, before the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> but I, was, I wanted to say that Ron the Swami, in addition to the food being so good, they uh, your. The Hare Krishna people have been amazingly wonderful in uh, distributing food, often for free to uh, people, not only in the United States, but they do an amazing program in Mumbai and other parts of India and other parts of the world. So, yeah, uh, I hear I hear some amazing uh, numbers of plates, like hundred thousand plates no, a heard, month or something. I heard, like I heard two hundred thirty thousand a day in Mumbai alone. Oh, wow, I mean, it's hard I, to imagine. It's hard to imagine. I um, not only live near the Govindas in L.A., but when I my uh, when I bring uh, tour groups to India, I've done three now. We always go to uh, spend some time with the uh, with the tra- people in your tradition. We took one group to Vrindavan. We took another group. Uh, we spent four or five days at Radhanath Swami's Echo Village outside of uh, Mumbai. And on the last trip, we spent a fabulous evening at the uh, a temple in Bangalore, mm-hmm. where they gave us a tour of their uh, cooking facilities because and they, and fed us in their beautiful restaurant. But uh, their cooking facilities, they bring lunch to underprivileged uh, children in schools every day, hundreds of thousands, uh, just in uh, Bangalore alone. So, yes, the, tradi- wow. the tradition of devotion 
um, and the tradition of seva, of service, is very alive uh, in, in, in that uh, lineage. So um, speaking of which, Ananta, my last question, because we have to uh, go, is mm-hmm. uh, one of the things you say on, on your website is, I quote, I truly believe that rediscovering our common heritage will help us overcome the tendency to divide and see each other on opposite sides, unquote. So this seems to be a guiding principle of yours and uh, in the album and in the, uh, in the book, the story in the book. So perhaps you'd like to leave us since we live in such uh, insane times. Uh, um, uh, you know, we're recording this at the end of September 2020 in the middle of the pandemic and the election year and racial tension. Uh, maybe you'd like to leave our listeners with something uh, soothing and inspiring. Sure. Uh, well, yes, rediscovering common heritage, I think that will hopefully will help all of us to uh, resonate in the same frequencies, and then we will all sound more like an orchestra, sound like an ensemble rather than, you know, you know how before the concert they have all these uh, people in the orchestra trying to tune, and it sounds horrible, it sounds like, I don't know, so, uh, so for me, Current reality is it's a little bit like that. We're trying to tune, but we don't really have um, we don't really have that saw. We don't really have that grounding note to tune to to find that harmony. So I started uh, a nonprofit called Vedic Renaissance, and rediscovering common heritage is is the motto, is the goal of this nonprofit. And the idea is to, through uh, culture, through uh, media presentation, books, music, help us find uh, unifying energy within us and find uh, more common between us rather than things that divide us apart. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Ananta. Good luck with the release of all your multimedia projects. Listeners, Go to anantagovinda.com and listen to uh, the tracks on Mirror of Desire. All that is on the website. Right, and we'll have that on the website. And then when you say Anantagovinda, it's not Ananda. It's A-N-A-N-T-A-G-O-V-I-N-D-A.com. But again, we'll have that all posted up. Thank you so much. It was a delight. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. And it was a great time. Okay, we'll be in touch. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.